Pepper and uh, your worship team for leading us so well. And what a song, what lyrics, what a prayer. Jesus, make new wine out of me. I trust that that was the prayer of your heart, that was the, des- the expressed desire of your heart this morning, that whatever you've come here with, whether it is emptiness or brokenness or whatever, that Jesus would bring new wine out of you. It is certainly my prayer. And yes, the children are now dismissed for uh, Children's Church. Thank you, Ed, for standing. Oh, Children's Packet. Yes. Thank you for standing there and, and uh, reminding me of that. Can any of you predict what your greatest shock will be when you get to heaven? What will your greatest shock be when you get to heaven? Someone says that the biggest shock that you will have when you get to heaven is who's there. That's your biggest shock. Your second shock will be that the people you thought would definitely not be there are in fact there. And your biggest shock of all would be that you're there. I thought that was pretty cool. And so our text uh, this morning will focus on a woman that none of us would give the slightest chance of making it to the pearly gates, much less making it into heaven. Let's read her story and become familiar with who she was, where she lived, and what she did for a living. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, you will help me read it. The um, particular designations are there for you to see, that who will read pastor and then who will read people, and that would be you. So I will read the opening paragraph that says pastor, and you will continue until we get to the end of the chapter. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go on your way. And we'll all read verse 21. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, would you be at all surprised this morning if I told you that God knows who you are, where you live, and what you do? Would you be surprised if I told you that? Does that seem trite? To you at all. God knows who you are. He knows where you live. And he knows what you do for a living. Now imagine with me this morning that she walked into church. She came late. The service had already begun. In she walked in her high heels and her seductive attire. And she walked all the way to the front of the church and she sat there. Men were struggling to keep their eyes off her. Their wives were just as upset with them for looking as she was with her for coming. Now, would you be happy to see her if that was Brown's Chapel this morning? Would you be glad that she came to a church where she could hear the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you even sense that maybe the Holy Spirit had in fact led her here because he was indeed interested in her soul, saving her soul. 
saving her from who she was, where she lived, and what she did for a living. Now, the first thing that we learn from Rahab's story is that God knows exactly who you are, where you live, and what you do. That knowledge means that he knows exactly where to find you. He sends messengers to knock on your door to save you from who you are, from where you live, from what you do. So Joshua sends these two men from the camp of Israel. He sends them on a reconnaissance mission to spy out the land of Jericho. He was about, or he had received instructions from God that ultimately they were to destroy Jericho. But he sent these men out to spy out the territory, to, you know, find out their weaknesses and to bring word back. Now, I am surprised and fascinated at the same time that of all the houses, of all the houses in Jericho that they could have gone to, they end up at a prostitute's house. They knock on her door. She lets them in. They spend the night there. And the question in my mind is, do they know that she's a prostitute? And if, in fact, they know that she's a prostitute, does that make any difference? Do they stay nonetheless? You and I are not naive about who prostitutes are and what they do. It's all about their body. They entice men with it. They sell it to whoever will pay the price for it. They are husband stealers. They are home breakers, if you will. They rob kids of their daddies, if you will. Rahab is that kind of a woman. And so with her house on the city wall, next to the city gate, she has first dibs at whoever comes to her city needing her services. And God knows all of that about Rahab. But he wants to save her anyway. So second point. And so before you and I write off Rahab, notice that God lets these two men find her house and find her, not by accident, not to buy her services, but to save her from who she was, where she lived, and what she did. Wouldn't it be true to say this morning that you and I are not that different from Rahab, although we probably think that we are. We're not that different from her. Okay, so you and I may not necessarily be prostitutes. But how about lying, which Rahab was very good at, a master at? Because you see, didn't she have to lie to herself repeatedly because she really hated her line of work, but she loved the attention and the money that her line of work brought to her? Didn't she have to lie repeatedly to herself to quiet her guilty conscience? Didn't she have to lie to the men that she slept with in order to make them feel satisfied? Liars have no integrity, do they? Liars can't be trusted. Liars only know how to lie. And so when the King of Jericho sends messengers to her saying, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out our land. She hides them 
And then she sends a message back to the king saying, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. They left when it was time to close the city gate, but I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. Now, we all know that she's lying. The king does not, but we know she's lying. But liars make good candidates for salvation. Liars make good candidates for salvation. God is interested in saving liars. Don't you also lie on some level? Don't you sometimes lie to save face? Or to cover up details or to keep others from knowing who you really are or what you did when no one was looking? And doesn't God know that about you? But he comes knocking on your door anyway because he wants to save you from who you are, from where you live, from what you do for a living. All right, so we may not share the prostitute thing with Rahab and we may not be liars But how about being opportunists? Rahab is an opportunist. She hides the spies because she knows that there is something in it for her. She's not about to give up something for nothing. She knows how to drive a good bargain. She has has done that all of her life with men. She has bargained with men. But she wants some assurance here that if she is kind to these men, then they will reward her kindness by not only saving her life, but the lives of her parents and her siblings and her brothers and sisters as well. So this is a a quid pro quo kind of a thing. Now, you all know what quid, quid pro quo is because it's been in the news a lot recently, right? So you know what that is. She is bargaining for something. She's giving something in order to get back something. And so she grabs this opportunity with both hands because she is an opportunist. Doesn't God know that we too are opportunists? We often make spiritual decisions based on what's in it for us, don't we? We are not about to give up something for nothing we make spiritual decisions based on their value to us, what they'll bring us, bring back to us. But God knows that. He knows that and he comes knocking on our door anyway because he wants to save us from who we are, from where we live, and from what we do. Here's the very interesting thing about Rahab. God made her with spiritual inclination and he makes you with that as well. I want us to notice that Rahab is not all bad. She has some good qualities as well. There is something good in her. She has something called spiritual inclination. Others call it a capacity for spiritual things. She may not have any morals, but she has spiritual capacity. She may not be be able to quote Bible verses, But she's heard some powerful things about God and she knows that God is for real. She may be living a dishonest lifestyle and she may not be in a relationship with God, but she knows that God is for real and that he's really powerful. That you can't mess with God. Sihon 
and Og, those two kings, recognized that because they were utterly destroyed because of God's power. She heard those things and she knew that God was for real. Listen to what she is already confessing about God, even though she doesn't know him. I know, she says, that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction, meaning that you completely destroyed them. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any of us because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And I ask myself, or I say to myself, what a testimony from a prostitute. What a testimony. That is a better testimony than some of us actually have who have a knowledge and a relationship with, with Christ. Three times in this, these verses, he uses the term, the Lord. I know that the Lord has given you the land. We have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea before you. Our hearts are melting in fear, for the Lord your God is in heaven, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Three times she uses the name, the Lord. Now she knows that this God is not like her gods or any other God that she has heard before. She knows that this is the God in the heavens. She acknowledges him. She acknowledges that he is really powerful. That you don't want to mess with this powerful God. Even if she hasn't yet experienced his life-changing power, she knows that he's powerful. And so her heart is trembling because of him. She has some spiritual inclination. She has spiritual capacity. She is open to spiritual things. Do you know anyone like that? They're not there yet. They don't have their testimony together yet. They don't have their morals together yet. They can't quote scripture yet. But they're open to spiritual things. They believe that there is a God, even though they have not yet trusted him. It was Blase Pascal who said that in each of us, there is a, quote, a God-shaped vacuum which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but God. There is spiritual capacity in Rahab and in this spiritual capacity in all of us. I believe that one thing that we as believers generally, and we as members at Brown's Chapel specifically, we need to become really good at celebrating the fact that Rahab's come to church anyway. We need to become good at that. But how quick we are to judge people, to write off people, to pull the trigger at them because we find their lifestyle to be a little bit reprehensible. We need to learn to celebrate the fact that the Rahabs of the world are still coming to church. It was the Reverend Henry Wright who said this, and I quote him, 
The one thing that God has not called the church to do is to judge people. We who have experienced God's transforming grace must let people come to church with liquor on their breath, with the smell of smoke on their clothes, with their pornographic tendencies not yet under control, and we should praise God that they're coming to church anyway. Because as long as they're coming, they're hearing the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ, and chances are their lives will be transformed in the process. In a 2006 study entitled, Why People Do What They Do, sociologist Craig Erie writes this, People do things, ultimately, for reasons that make sense to them at the time. Based on their own goals, the context, and other intervening factors, their behavior can be explained even though it may not make sense to us, or we would have done things differently or we may not agree with what they've done, quote-unquote. People do things based on what makes sense to them. The Rahabs of our world do things because it makes sense to them at the, at the time, because they have not yet experienced what it is to be transformed. And so we as believers, myself included, we need to see potential in people. We need to look, be able to look past where they're at and where God is trying to take them. We need to learn, and we still do, we need to learn how to say to people in a very loving and uncondemning way that, you know, we don't approve of your lifestyle, whether it is with men or with women. We don't approve of what you're doing, but we, we see the image of God in you and we are going to love you anyway. Everybody has gone silent on that point because it is the truth. We need to be able to look past what we see and see the image of God in people and love them where they are at. Love them anyway. Rahab is a reminder of who we were before we became the bride of Christ. Let me remind us that we were not always the bride of Christ. We have a backstory. <laughs> we have a past. Rahab reminds us of that past. And so in Rahab, we all see ourselves. Rahab is a reminder that God loves us where we are at. In our immorality, in our lying, in our addictions, in our opportunistic tendencies, he, he loves us anyway. But he doesn't leave us there. God doesn't love us as an excuse for us staying he loves us in order that we might become transformed by his grace. So God's love of you is not an excuse for you to remain in your Rahab lifestyle. He sees potential in you. I believe that's why the late Andrew Crouch was moved to pen these words. I shall forever lift mine eyes to Calvary to view the cross where Jesus died for me. How marvelous the grace that caught my falling soul. He looked beyond my faults. And he saw my need. Didn't God look beyond King David's fault of adultery and murder? And see that he could become a man after his own heart? 
Didn't he look beyond Moses' murder of an Egyptian and see that Moses could become the greatest leader that Israel ever knew? Didn't he look past the sin of the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and see a woman who could go and call all of her past lovers and say, come meet a man who has told me everything that I've ever done and who has transformed my life. Didn't he look past the sin, the murderous tendencies of the Apostle Paul and see the potential in him to become the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen? And then Paul when he was on the other side of grace now, he looked back and this is what he says to us about who he used to be and who we used to be. I've always been fascinated by these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, do not be deceived. And now he's going to list a, a lot of things that we, a lot of categories that we found ourselves in. He's going to list them. And then he's, going to, then he's going to tell us something about that. He says, he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will ever inherit the kingdom of God. So he makes that point. He lists all those categories. And then listen to what he says. And that is what some of you were. Rahab reminds us that we were in some of these categories. Paul does not stay there. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, but, and that's a very important word there, contrast now, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now those are some important theological terms there that we all need to understand the meaning of. You were washed. The blood of Jesus Christ cleansed you from your sins. You were sanctified, meaning that God set you apart and, con and is continuing a work of purification in you, making you more like Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification means, that you enter a process in which the Spirit of God working in you is conforming you to the image of Christ. He's making you more and more and more like Christ. You were justified. Somebody said that that means just as if you never sinned. He is making you right with God. So what's the only difference between us and Rahab? We were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so we would be just like Rahab and perhaps even worse had it not been for the grace of God. Somebody says, and I like that this quote, it's almost like in old English, there go I but for the grace of God. In other words, had it not been for God's grace, I would be doing the very same thing. And you would as well. There's another Old Testament character that Rahab brings to mind. Her name is Gomer. How many of you have ever heard that, that name before? Just a few of you. Just as I thought. Gomer. 
Old Testament character. You have to turn to the book of Hosea to come across that name. So just like Rahab, she used to defile herself with men, with adultery, with prostitution. She had a very colorful lifestyle. And yet, when God wanted to demonstrate to Israel and to us what his love for them and for us was like, you know what he did? He turned to a prophet named Hosea, whose name, by the way, means God saves. He turns to the prophet Hosea and he says, Go marry Gomer, whose name means defiled, because, you see, God loves people where they're at. He loves us where we are at in order to take us to where he wants to take us. So imagine the prophet Hosea. Now this woman, Gomer, has a public reputation now. Everyone in the village knows what her lifestyle is. And God is saying to this prophet, to this godly man, I want you to go and marry this woman whose name means defiled and not only marry her, but have children with her. Because that that was God's way of showing Israel the kind of love that he had for them. So God loves you where you're at. God sees what you can become through his grace. He wants to love you into freedom. He wants to love you into purity. He wants to love you into salvation. And ultimately, he wants to love you into heaven where he will reign forever and ever. Finally, there's a lesson for us in the scarlet cord. There's a lesson. The verse tells us, tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. The men speaking to Rahab says that to them, to her, I'm sorry. And gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Now what's really behind this scarlet cord? This cord that the men ask Rahab to tie in the window. This cord that uh, Rahab had used to let them down from her house. The scarlet cord is what theologians call typology. An Old Testament occurrence which fulfills itself in a New Testament thing. And so this scarlet cord, used way back in the Old Testament, points to a New Testament phenomenon. It it points to the blood of Jesus Christ that would ultimately be shed on the cross to redeem people, to save people. That's what the scarlet cord means. This scarlet cord and this blood of Jesus Christ that it represents is what saves us, washes us, sanctifies us, justifies us from whatever makes us like Rahab. So we must praise God for this blood, the blood of Jesus that never loses its power. So don't write off Rahab. God did not write her off. He included her. God included her. Prostitute, liar, opportunist, though she was, God included her. She became a woman of faith, and from her line, from her lineage, came the Savior of the world, who would indeed go to a cross to redeem us from whatever makes us like Rahab. This message has a bottom line. It's one of hope. 
There's no one who can sink too low that the grace of God cannot lift them. Oh, what a beautiful thing is this thing called grace. I don't believe that we really fully understand what grace is, what God's grace is. It lifts us from whatever depths we have sunk to in life. It's a beautiful thing. Here are three application points. And these three application points are not three neat things to bring the message to a close. These are three things that come out of the message that you need to take with you and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to adopt. Here's the first thing. Pray for God to give you a different perspective about people, some people. This is going to make some of you uncomfortable because, truthfully, there are some things about people's lives that we find offensive. Can I get an amen on that? Can we be honest on that? Yes. But we have to pray that God gives us a different perspective about these people because he has not written them off and neither should we. We have to find a way, uncomfortable though it may be, to reach people. So rather than thumbing our nose at their lifestyle, rather than being um, uncomfortable with it, we need to ask God to help us to see the image of Jesus Christ in them, to see potential in them, to see the spiritual capacity that in the, is in them, and to pray for opportunities to be Jesus to them. Can I rely on you to do that this week? To love people where they're at. Here's the second application point. Marvel at the depth of God's love. Really, marvel. Because if he could take someone like Rahab and clean her life up and give her hope and put her in the hall of fame, which is the hall of faith, then what, what can he do with our lives? What depth can you sink to that the grace of God can't get onto you and lift you up out of it? Believe me, if there are people who tell, some people, if they were to tell you their stories of how they got converted, you would have no response other than to bow your head in admiration of God's grace, of how he has transformed their lives. Marvel at the depth of God's love. He doesn't write off anybody. He loves us regardless, regardless of who we are, regardless of where we live, regardless of what our lifestyle is. But again, he will not leave us there. His love of us is not an excuse for us to stay in what we're doing. His love aims to transform us, and we must learn to love people that way as well. Here's a final application point. Allow God's grace to lift you above your description. Other people have described you a certain way all of your life. You have done things along the way that have created your own description of yourself. Maybe you see yourself that way. Maybe others see you that way. Maybe you have strikes against you. 
Maybe the circumstances that you're in right now are circumstances of your own choosing, or maybe somebody else got you in them. And these things have formed a description that you have believed about yourself. I want to challenge you this morning to allow God's grace to lift you above that description that you have of yourself and that description that others have of you. How many of you are prepared to do that this morning as we, as we bow our heads reverently, as we examine our own hearts? Many of you are willing to pray, God, now that you have washed up my life and made me clean, I tend to thumb my nose at people whose lives are not yet clean. Give me a new and different perspective for those people. How many of you have never really fully grasped the depth of how much God loves you and even now you are beginning to understand that? How many of you are prepared this morning to make a step and allow God's grace to lift you out of your circumstances and that description you have of yourself that has been thrust upon you? If you're here this morning and you need to respond to any of these three points, if you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart in some way, I want to challenge you to do something about it this morning. Don't leave this place before you have talked to God. I see the hand of anyone this morning who needs to talk to God about any issue raised in this message this morning. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about anyone, yes, 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 yes. Is there anyone else? I want to challenge you as I begin to pray for you to allow the Holy Spirit to take you beyond raising your hands take you into obedience, step-by-step -step obedience, not perfection in any way because none of us will ever get there, but obedience, obedience. Let us pray. Oh, the depth of your grace and your love. And God, only those of us who have found ourselves in situations and in sin that have truly disgraced you. Only those of us can really fully appreciate what your grace means. The depth of your forgiveness, your love. So this morning, God, our response to you as we have looked at Rahab's life and seen how you, have, you remarkably transformed her life, we marvel at this. But we also marvel at how you have transformed our lives and the depth that you brought us from. And God, there were those who raised their hands this morning in response to something that you said to them in this message. God, this is totally between the Holy Spirit and them. We ask that even now that as I pray and as they pray in their hearts that the Holy Spirit would bring clarity about that one area that you're putting your finger on this morning, that one area in their lives. I pray that you would call them into deeper obedience and that there would be a willingness 
to step into that obedience and to do exactly what it is that you're asking them to do today and this week. Holy Spirit, we pray that you do your work. Do your work in our hearts and in our lives. Remove the chains, God, that bind us. Remove the things that blind our eyes. Remove the things that callous our hearts. Remove the things that clog our ears. Help us to become fully responsive and fully aware of the Holy Spirit and his work in us and the things that he's calling us to. And God, let there be an obedience that is called forth from our lives as we walk with you today and in the days ahead. I commit your people to you this morning. Accomplish your good and perfect work in them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.